Tony is he's feeding me these Chico brewed Sierra Nevada pale ales. And you're frowning. And well, I just want to say that they taste great. They really, really taste good. Hello, and welcome to what is obviously not The Daily Show. I'm obviously not John Stewart. I'm Jason Ross, one of the show's 14 writers. Our top story, really our only story, the ongoing writer's strike, which began last Monday after talks broke down. Hello, and welcome to Here in L.A., Hollywood Edition. Today we're talking with Jason Ross, who's a writer, a fisherman, a dad, and a multiple Emmy Award winner. Mm. He's written for TV shows like The Daily Show and The Tonight Show. He co-wrote a book you might even have on your shelf right now, America the Book, A Citizen's Guide to Democracy in Action. In the spring, he released his first kid's book, The Amazing Beef Squad. Never say die! Let's welcome the best thing to come out of Chico since the man, Jason Ross. I am here with Jason Ross, the famous Jason Ross. <laughs> Today we're going to talk about Hollywood. And what's interesting about you, Mr. Jason Ross, is in many ways, and you may not look at it this way, but in many ways you have fulfilled the Hollywood dream. In fact, you did something that I don't I think only a handful of people did, which was you wrote for a New York show while living in Hollywood. We call that the reverse John Bynes because he, he was writing for Jimmy Kimmel in Brooklyn, probably still is today. So yeah, for, for about a year and a half in 2013, 14, um, I was writing for Jimmy Fallon from, from Los Feliz, um, which was, uh, it, it was, it was great in a lot of ways. And it was also, um, it was also very limited in, in, in a lot of ways because I didn't get to know anybody at the show. There was never going to be any advancement for me at that show. And so, so 2013, this is pre-Zoom. So how, did you even have video chat going on? It was mostly email. Um, and it worked very well. And, uh, and I later learned, uh, well, pretty soon learned, that the reason it worked fairly well for me is that it was running exactly the same way for the people in the office. They were getting the same emails I was getting, and that's how they were working, too. And they were submitting by email the same as I was submitting by email. And so a lot of them were sitting in the same room, but they were working individually and um, and getting the same type of assignment emails that I was getting. Um, the thing I was missing every day was uh, uh, the, a meeting with Jimmy Fallon where he would be reading the jokes for the first time. Um, and, and, and there's an interesting setup there where the writers were the audience for their own jokes being read for the first time by the host as he picks which ones he's going to go with and which ones he's going to kill. And so that was a very, for me, that was a very awkward meeting. And so I'm like, I don't even particularly need to be at that meeting. <laughs> I don't mind missing it. My perception of a writing room in, let's say, The Daily Show or any of these places, and please correct me because I'm sure I'm wrong, bunch of guys... Doritos, weed, not a lot of writing, not a lot of jokes, just a lot of nonsense. And then finally, okay, let's get the jokes together. In the 1970s, that might, there might have been rooms like that. The Daily Show is a very businesslike place, but also a very joyful place um, where we had we, we had a lot of fun in that room. And, and the job, I saw the job, and I think most people did, as making everybody else laugh based on whatever idea we're kicking around and trying to pitch out the funniest idea. 
But also what a lot of people don't understand is that a, a, a room at a late night show, those aren't room written shows. So the room is something where, uh, at least at that show, it was about a 90 minute morning meeting. That was the room most of the time. And that's when we kicked pitches around, when you would pitch your own ideas, when you would uh, build somebody else's pitch and try and figure out what you're going to do that day or maybe the next day. And then later in the day, when things are really getting written and we're getting notes back, um, we would have what we called gangs or at other shows, gang rights. Uh, and And a gang was when... Uh, okay, there's this one joke that we need replaced. There's a, a punchline we need, uh, or, or there, there's a new idea that we want to put in right here, and we need a joke on it. And so now everybody who's available gets in one room and and gangs out, uh, you know, six or ten punchlines on this one idea. Um, and that's a very focused fifteen or thirty minutes right there. That sounds really fun. It's great. It's great fun, but it's not like there's there's no there's no weed there's no there there's no you know not much in the way of of, of snack foods away from uh you know actual meal time uh meal time's a big deal i don't want to say we didn't eat we ate pretty well uh and at the daily show because they had to uh feed the the crew every day based on their union contract they had to feed the tech crew it was you know not that much more money to just feed everybody and it kept everybody in the office means you don't get a lunch you know you don't and and on the far west side of Manhattan, especially at that time, there weren't that many options to eat uh, out on out on Eleventh and Twelfth Avenue. Um, so we so we ate catered lunch uh, four days a week. It was it was really great. At the at about the second half of of that of that the run that I was there, um, we started doing a daily three p.m. meeting, which was for the following day. And uh, that because that was a slow time when production was busy producing what we had written up until then. And there was a, a lull of about a half hour, maybe an hour before rehearsal. And um, and we would uh, we'd come in and, and, and the writers and, and the producers. And, and that's another thing that people probably would never know uh, about The Daily Show, because writers get so much of the glory of, at a show like that. But there, there's a room of, of what they call studio producers. And I think at most. Um, most other shows would be called segment producers and, uh, they are as good as anybody in the business. I mean, just ferocious half, I, I, you know, same day producers who can take something. Uh, and, and so they, and I bring them up because they were a lot of the, um, a lot of the pitches, a lot of like, Hey, what, what is topical today? Um, would be brought in by producers. That was part of their job is to follow what's been on the news. What what have we been seeing on on the screens down in down in their room? Um, and and they, you know, we we never we were never short of material at the Daily Show. That was never an issue. It was always a matter of is this something that we can have an original take on? And and you know, W and I'm sure Trump for for the writers who had to deal with Trump. All writers had to deal with. But I feel like it was it was hard because of what you just said. What's the take? What's the take that not everybody on Twitter nowadays has? Because Twitter's pretty damn funny, and anybody can be funny on Twitter. Although the professionals are generally a little bit better at it. Um, but still, so but still, so Dave Isikoff writes something funny, kicks your ass. And now you got to forget that for a second and have your own take on something. That's got to be hard. You're you're absolutely right that Twitter has yanked the rug out from under late night. 
It just has, it just has happened. So late night can still do it better. It can do it with production values. It can do it with video and sound and with, um, you know, little parody ideas that they can put together. But, um, but the, the, the novelty of that joke, the, the, um, the, the, it, it was almost like, you know, watching Carson back in the eighties when we were teenagers, that was like, it was almost like church in the way that it was like a special hour. Like this is an hour where we're going to, we're going to laugh about the news during this monologue. This isn't something that we're going to take seriously. This is something we're going to laugh about for these 15 minutes of the day. And now it's all day long, all the time. Which, which is why I give so much props to a guy like Bill Maher or even John Oliver, who it takes them a week to get their sh- that show up. Let's say Matt Gates does something dumb on Monday. You would think all the jokes have expired before Friday. And yet Maher still, his monologue is awesome every single every single week. And, and the same with John Oliver. They, they do figure out how to have a different joke and a different take. And, and you're like, why didn't I think of that? Which I guess is the highest compliment that an audience. It, it is. It is a. It is a compliment to to the to the staffs of those shows that that uh, that and and you know maybe in that way you could say that Twitter's just forcing everybody to be a little bit better, but uh, I I still see it as a as as a a seeding of of ground that uh, now everybody in the world is making jokes about stuff it used to only be a couple hundred people were doing. Let me ask you about uh, writing in Hollywood compared to New York. Because my perception would be New York would be almost impossible to write in because there's so many distractions. And I know we're two different different people. But if I can get Italian food at three o'clock in the morning, suddenly I'm not in front of my computer anymore. I'm walking down the street getting Italian food, like really good Italian food at three in the morning. Whereas here, I, I guess I can walk to the, the taco truck but I'm probably not gonna because it's not the same. You're saying there are hours of the day when you get things done because you feel like the town is shut down around you? That's why I go to sleep at six in the morning because I usually work after everything's done. When everything's shut down, that's interesting. Um, uh, you know, I guess other. Th- I guess I'm distracted by other things. I'm not distracted by Italian food at, in the middle of the night. I'm, I'm distracted by the internet. I'm distracted by, you know, I'm distracted by the easy stuff that you'll get anywhere. Um, and for the most part, I, for, for the most part, I don't buy anyone's argument that one town is hard to write in and another town is easier to write in. It's always a matter of your discipline or, or, or your, if it, you know, if you, if you're lucky enough to be in a cloistered kind of situation, like a TV show where you have to show up at 9am and write something by 11am, you're going to do it. That, and that's the thing. Hard deadlines. Yeah. I think are a blessing because if I, if I'm sitting in this little cubby right here and I've got no deadline, I'm probably not going to finish. And so daily show was probably easy as far as that goes. I I had a friend when I was, when I first moved actually to New York, he was a friend from Chico. Um, his name's Alan and he was a cellist and, uh, he was a professional cellist who went to, I think Morningside conservatory. Um, and he, and, and he talked about Johann Sebastian Bach and how he lived uh, as a as as the composer at a church somewhere I don't even know where, but his job was every single week to write uh, a, a cantata or something for that week's mass, an original piece of music every single Sunday. It's the deadline, 
God's deadline. Every Sunday, Bach needed to hand in a piece of organ music. And that's why if you look up Bach's catalog, it's hundreds of pieces long because this guy lived every single week uh, locking the door, putting the notes down on paper. And if you can get yourself into that situation, there's nothing you can't create. So let's go back to perceptions again. When you were a young boy living in Chico, Chico, for those of us who uh, uh, don't know, is in, would you call it Central California? No, it's Northern California by far. It's um, about 90 miles north of Sacramento. It's north of Sacramento? For, yeah, 90 miles. It's a college town that is, um, it's very, it, it's an intersection of a lot of different cultures, which not a lot of college towns are, I think. It's an intersection of of that year's college kids who are coming in from the Bay Area mostly, and some from Southern California. So it's this influx of um, of, of college kids. There are uh, long-term farming families who are there, who have been there for 100, 100 years. And there are, especially when I was growing up, there were back-to-the-land hippies. And and then I think as a, on a rolling basis, all of the college students who came f- to, to go to Chico State and then stayed because they liked it. And that was a very like middle-aged hippie kind of vibe. Um, and so it was really the the, um, the 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 intersection of those like broadly those those three and then and then it, and then there's families like mine. I was a faculty family. My parents were faculty at the college, so you know my parents came from the Midwest, and so there was always an influx of PhDs from all over the country who who, who were setting up shop there. So you're in Chico, which now I have now I know is Northern California above Sacramento. It's it's uh, yeah ninety miles north. What was your perception of Hollywood? If somebody said Hollywood in 1980, what are you, five, six, high school grad? 88. <laughs> okay, 88. Somebody said Hollywood. What would, what would you think of? Well, you know, the 80s, 80s and early 90s were not great times for Los Angeles. And I think I had a, a very strong Northern California chauvinism. And I don't think I ever would have, um, I, I, w- I wouldn't have been happy about moving to LA in the 80s or 90s. What about visiting? My my first job out of college in 94 was at a small publisher in Chico called Moon Publications, not associated with the Universalist Life Church. If you say so. <laughs> uh, but it was it was part of that hippie culture that I talked about because um because some uh a, a a guy wrote a guide. It was a travel book company. A guy wrote a guidebook while he was uh, tripping on acid in Indonesia, <laughs> and, uh, and he was looking at the moon. And he said, "I'm going to call my company Moon Publication." And 20 years later, you know, there's 20 people working there, and it's an actual going concern. It's getting acquired by other publishers and everything. Uh, Kids, take note. Yeah, right. <laughs> uh, and and I was an editorial assistant there, um, coming out of college. Uh, in uh, in 94 and I sort of agitated to go to the ABA the American Booksellers Association conference in Los Angeles with um, with this other um, a, a hippie who went to college in Chico in the early 70s and stayed uh, who is now working at the place and we stayed in Hollywood at a motel I want to say probably on Hollywood Boulevard and I remember I treated it like a total, debauch. I was just like this I'm going to a place with no soul. I'm going to a place with uh with, with only low character. I'm going to like uh you know, the, the, this is just going to be like a sort of noir Hunter Thompson kind of vibe for the next 3 days. And that's kind of how I lived it. Um and then we left and I didn't miss it at all. And and is that what your perception was in high school of 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 
LA in general. LA in general was like uh, probably Hollywood Tulsa. Um, yeah, it was. It, it was that. Uh, it it was um, smoggy. It was ugly. It was covered in concrete. There were no forests, no trees. Um, you couldn't go fishing. You couldn't go uh, intertubing down a cold, cold river the way you could just outside of Chico. Um, and um, and and you have to also see it in terms of contrasting it with San Francisco, right? Where you live. I never even lived there, and yet I fetishized that place as a Northern Californian for as a, as a young adult, as a um, you know a, a sort of magical city on the sea where the fog rolled in and where there were cedar trees and, and you know all of all of that was an authentic city to me um and and Los Angeles was not authentic at all to me at that time and so i guess this makes sense why when you when you left uh california you went to new york new york is an incredible as as a young person new york is an incredible validator of you as as a grown up because it's an entire city that you can walk, and you can walk into any door in that city. You can walk into Tiffany's. You can walk into Twenty One. You can walk through New York, walk through Central Park. You can walk into the Met. You can walk into all these places, these world class places. You can walk into a an employer. I walk when I moved there later. I walked into Spy Magazine. Just walked right in, handed them my resume. Same thing with the New York Times. I walked right in. You know, New York is about walking through those doors. Um, and that was a that was an experience that I'd I'd never had before, and it made me feel a, a way that I wanted to to capture again through the front door. Yeah. <laughs> Whereas in L.A., everything's in the back door because that's, <laughs> that's where you're driving are, in. Yeah. Which blows my mind because some of the front doors, especially on Wilshire in L.A., are gorgeous. They're amazing. And yet they're locked, and like people look like, like you're stupid trying to open up that door. It's like what? No, I'm walking on the street like a normal person. So you have children in New York, you raise children in New York, and then you bring those children to this sin hole, this, this Hunter S. Thompson sin hole of L.A. Because you were bored of New York? A couple things had happened. One, I was now working in entertainment, and I didn't have a ton of friends who had made the move west, and it worked out great. That hadn't really happened all that much, even coming from The Daily Show. You know, it's, um, it, it works out okay. You know, but it hadn't quite worked out great. And also, Los Angeles had gone through a complete renaissance while I was on the East Coast. I mean, the the late '90s, early 2000s in in LA. I don't, I don't know. You could tell me what it was, but you know, things things got really great here in a way that I think they probably weren't in the late '80s, early '90s. And it was palatable. You you could you noticed. You could tell the difference. I could. Um, we had been, we'd been coming here for, this is going to sound obnoxious. We had been coming here for Emmy week, Emmy weekend for a number of years in a row. Where'd they put you up for, for this? It was, it was funny. We used to complain so much, like bitches. We used to complain. The Daily Show flew the entire staff, like 90 people. The tech crew flew them out. And, uh, and th- those, uh, like, so so yeah so they rented 90 rooms or whatever very generous um in uh there was a there was a place in west hollywood called the what was it the park p-a-r-c something i think just the park maybe the park do you know it i don't know oh okay um uh for a couple years and then at the and then then toward the end i think they started cutting off the the entire staff vibe you know like they're okay we're just now we're just gonna fly the nominees and um 
and at that point the the hotels got a lot better and, and at one point it was it was shutters and another point it was Casa del Mar yeah nice. yeah now wait now the Emmys were were they held in uh, downtown yeah so they were yeah. shuttling <laughs> you from shutters <laughs> from the beach to downtown which I guess you can do. It's just the ten, but it's still, just the ten. But it, it's still it, it's that's, a that's it's, very generous. It's of incredibly that. generous because they could have easily said, "Ah, you're going to be at some crappy downtown." I mean, not crappy, yeah, we're going to do. You're right, but it's going to be the high at downtown, right? Something. Yeah, compared to shutters night and day. Yeah, yeah. Um, and by the way, talking about perceptions, when you're in New York and you talk to people about LA. They only think about the beach. Yeah, right. They don't think about the riots that you were thinking I think about that, in the I, 80s. I think that that probably, I think, you know, I don't, I was never privy to the the decisions of how those things got decided, but I think John Stewart probably wanted to stay by the beach and he was enough of a democratic person, small D Democrat, that like, well, they're, like the staff is going to stay wherever I'm staying. That was a thing that I realized later, like, oh, not every TV star puts his staff up in the same hotel that he stays in. And I had actually had a, 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 a few examples of like, oh, they're not even on the same side of town as the rest of us, uh, which is, you know, that's, that's to his credit. So you move the family to LA, you... Um I think you were renting for a little while in, in Los Feliz before you moved to... Did you move to Hollywood proper? We we moved to Los Feliz, um, to Griffith Park Boulevard. Um, and uh, it was it, it was a it, it was a classic rental kind of situation where it was 2013. We flew out here for a week before, like uh, maybe a, a few months before we were going to move. And we're looking for a place to move our family. We had two kids, young children. Um, the, uh, the school districts were were a big deal. And so we decided to look for rentals in the Ivanhoe and Franklin and Wonderland districts. Those are three elementary schools in LA on the, on Northeast side of LA that are higher rated than just about any others. And that have really strong active parent bodies that, uh, that, that help, help keep them that way. We, and we couldn't find anything. And and we we hired one of those. Uh, what's that? What's that agency with the obnoxious signs that was were all over town? The- yeah. Well, now it's just uh, uh, apartments dot com. Yeah. But I think it was. Uh, it had the target shape on it. Yeah, yeah, yeah. Why can't I remember that? Um, uh, based on on Wilshire in uh, Santa Monica, West Side Rentals. West Side Rentals. So we went with that. You know, we 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 did the the thing through them, and um, and they came up with you know one or two like uh, you know just like nothing for us. Um, and then on our last morning, we which, were, which is odd to me because it's it's you probably had an okay budget. It wasn't like you were. Um, yeah, we were. You know, we were willing to. You know, we're coming from New York, so we're willing to spend some money on yeah. rent. You know, that was our world of like, yeah, rentals should cost. You know, in in the mid four figures. That's like our that's our world. And and it there just wasn't Tony. I'm telling you, like I don't know if it was a, a blip that year or that that season or or what, but like, um, it was it was tough. And, um, and then on our last day, we checked Craigslist and our landlord, our future landlord was advertising on Craigslist and nowhere else. And we did the thing where you show up with the application pre-printed and a check in your hand, which we learned in New York city, which is how you had to get an apartment in 1997. And, uh, 
and you know we were like the first ones responding and they they're like well of course you can have it. you just showed up with everything in your uh and so it was a it was a nice three-bedroom house on griffith park boulevard uh north of los Feliz boulevard um on a it, it was a you know that that street is sort of a um it's sort of a shortcut for people who are stuck on Los Feliz. So there's some traffic there, but it's still a, a nice street and we liked the neighborhood and it was in the Franklin district, which is what we were going for. Was this the, the residence that you were telling me that um, people would get Airbnbs in the neighborhood and... No, that's that's actually my current residence. Ah, and, okay. And I'm actually I'm actually lucky because I'm, I'm telling those stories secondhand. We don't actually have um, an Airbnb problem in our like... Like immediate hood. Well, but but that might have been COVID. That could be. But it has it even before COVID, it hadn't happened. Like, and, it, and, but it it had happened. You know, a canyon over in in a way that we were hearing. And about. the issue was that people who rent Airbnbs have big parties, be super loud. Yeah. And the the music would vibrate through the canyons and. Yeah, and and, and and clog up the streets because you know the canyons are you know roughly one car wide to drive through and. Yeah, I mean, think about it. If you're like, let's say you're a 28 a, a year old miscreant, like we used to be, and and you you want to throw a party, like, are you going to throw it here? I mean, this could be an okay party, but like, if you put together a little bit of money, and it doesn't even take that much with Airbnb, you put together a little bit of money, and you could have a house with a view, with a deck, with a pool, and you know, you get five people chipping in. Maybe you put together a thousand, two thousand bucks, and you're looking like this for the weekend. You're balling. You're balling, and you invite a hundred people, and of course they're going to come, and of course they're going to they're going to treat it like like they're on vacation. And meanwhile, there's a family next door that's like, all right, well, uh, Tina and Tony used to live there. They were pretty cool. They had a dog we liked, uh, but uh, I guess this is this, this is what we got now. And that brings me back to perception. When people say, "Okay, this is my dream. I want to be a writer." I want to live in New York, then I want to move to the Hollywood Hills, and I want to raise my family in the Hollywood Hills. Everything's going to be great. And if I can only do A, B, and C, and I get there, it's all gravy. And then as soon as you lean back in that couch, yeah. you hear you hear Pitbull and the Fireball song. Yeah. <laughs> all night. Yeah. Unlivable. Totally unacceptable. Totally, and I know, I, and I have, I'm, I'm a close enough follower of you, follower of you on social media to know that, like, you, you have a very short fuse for city dwellers who complain about city life. But, but I also don't have a baby that's trying to sleep. You know, I have a very different life than you, and, and, but, but I'm grateful that there are other people who put me back into check and say, hey, not all of us can sleep until noon, and not all of us. You know, in fact, none of us can. You should check that. <laughs> well, if you noticed, I said anytime afternoon we can do this podcast. And um, but anyways, it's it's but that's what I actually appreciate about life is the dreams that we had as teenagers, especially teenage boys, and the the harsh realities of what life is. Even when we hit that home run, what happens? Oh, you didn't step on first. Okay, so outside of of that little part of uh, Airbnb world, Mr. Northern California man has now lived in LA for a number of years, raising children. One of your one of your kids is now old enough to start working a part time summer job, which is awesome. And how do you feel about living in Hollywood now? I love it. 
Really? I, I, I would happily live here the rest of my life. Really? Absolutely love it. Hollywood is Hollywood is is by far the most beautiful neighborhood in Los Angeles. This is not at all what I was expecting. Oh, really? No. I mean, I have fantasies about, you know, having a some boat that I can live on or something, but like in terms of practical like you know, in terms of like real life, like where do I want, where do I see myself? Like if we could stay in our house until, you know, they wheel me out in some kind of stretcher, I would be thrilled. Because I'm, I'm surprised because I felt like you were happy in New York. And it sounds like you, you loved your childhood in Chico. And we also loved living in Santa Barbara. All of those places are very different than Hollywood. Santa Barbara, Chico, San Diego for your wife, Upper West Side. There ain't no Upper West Side of Hollywood. Um, no, but uh, but it's yeah, it's it it's different. And so, for you to love it the way that it seems like you do, shout out to Hollywood. Hollywood is the most beautiful neighborhood in Los Angeles because it's a little bit elevated. There's a gradient to the streets. You can look down Vine, and it, and it's actually looking down Vine. There is a Riviera kind of feel to it. I mean, the whole thing that's special about Los Angeles is that it's so that the man-made parts are beautiful, and the and the nature and the natural setting is beautiful, and I think that's really um, the at its best combination in Hollywood. Chapter two. Now to recap, the swimming pool contract was the only reason we were in the park to begin with. It started nine months ago. We were all in Jared's pool, innocently playing Death Squid versus Machine Gun Shark. It's a slightly more sophisticated game than Stupid Ball, revolving entirely around the battle to control the pool cleaner's two sweeper hoses. And that should have been the end of it. Four friends, enjoying the simple pleasure of scouring out each other's eye sockets with high-pressure chlorinated water. But while we dove and gasped, kicked and coughed, elbowed and heaved, our parents were up on the patio drinking pink wine and hatching a plan to ruin our lives. The swimming pool contract decrees that we have to play in the park for an hour every day, even if a dark cloud rolls over McConnell Butte and rains a biblical torrent of frogs onto our heads, even if it's zero degrees and snowing nuclear sleet all over Leonardville, even if the sun goes red giant and scorches the valley into a glassy crust of pure silicon, we must play in the park. We have no say, no leverage, no choice in the matter, because if we don't play outside, then we can't play video games. So now you're right. Well, you've written, uh, I don't want to call it a children's book, young adult. YA, right? It's um, it's actually called middle grade. Middle grade is um, is is age-wise one, one step below young adult. So like, the, so like the first Harry Potter book was middle grade and the later ones were young adult. Okay. So was there a deadline for that? I don't actually remember. Did you get an advance? Yeah, I sold it with a, um, I sold it with about a $50. Um, this book, by the way, is called The Amazing Beef Squad, Never Say Die by Jason Ross. It's available on um, all the different book selling platforms. Um, and by the way, you can't get it cheap on eBay because I've tried. <laughs> that just means that's that just means that there aren't a lot of used copies. Floating no, there around. are at full hit. <laughs> You're like, if you want this, you got to pay. It's good. Um uh, yeah, you, um, so, so middle point- grade, middle grade is a really booming market right now. And it's possible. That's one of the reasons I wrote it. It's, it's possible to, to, to sell a book on a proposal in middle grade, which you can't always do. Really what I was asking was typically 
I understand it. If they give you an advance, there is a deadline for oh, certain yeah. things. Oh, yeah, 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 yeah. Um, you know what? My contract might have had a deadline. I don't remember caring about it very much. I, f- I either wasn't worried about it, either because it was late enough or because the the vibe felt casual enough to me that it wasn't going to be a, a problem for and, me. And you knew you had a story in you. Yeah. And it, it wasn't going to be hard to get out. Eh, I didn't quite know how it was going to get to the end. You know, they talk about act two problems in writing where you, you sort of know. I don't know anything about that. Um, well, the, the, the kind of cliche complaint of a writer is... Um, I'm having problems in act two because that's where the, the hardest, uh, the, 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 the hardest, um, choices you have to make and, and the most creative decisions you have to most, most creative solutions you need to come up with are in that place where it's not, it, it's not the, it's not the beginning where, you know, Luke Skywalker is, um, is a moisture farmer on Tatooine and he, he longs for something more exciting and it's not the end where, a bunch of fighters blow up the Death Star. You knew that when you started. Well, we're going to start here and we're going to end here. But what's the act two in the middle? How are you going to turn this into a, a story that feels like it's going to, uh, like like the you're, you're absolutely certain the heroes are going to fail at this, at this point. That's what act two is for. It's to let the heroes fail at their task. Um, and and to make the, the 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 viewer or the reader feel like that is a final failure. It's over. Their dreams are dashed. They're in the garbage uh, disposal. That's literally like there. Like there is a on, on Dan Harmon's heroes story of like where the uh, you know, heroes circle of like eight different stations. Like one of them is 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 the is the basement, and and it comes uh, and he, you know he 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 developed that from from Joseph Campbell, which is the same thing that George Lucas was reading when he did Star Wars. And so like the, if you if you follow the if if you track it like minute by minute, like the the garbage disposal in in star wars is like at exactly the point where it's supposed to be on on that on that hero's journey um so but that's hard you know even with even with tools as 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 powerful as joseph campbell and and all that it's 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 hard to get through act two so i wasn't totally sure how i was going to get through it but i i knew there was a um i i knew there were there there was sort of a not exactly i I guess a world but a, a a world view that these characters, these these thirteen-year-old uh, boys, that they had about their surroundings, about their world, and about the way they move through it, that I wanted to pursue. You know, that surprises me that that Act Two would be the struggle for you because you are a comedic genius, and we all know that most very funny people are also very in touch with the dark side, and isn't Act Two the dark side? Um, first of all, th- th- thank you. That's bullshit, etc. Um, you know, it's, it's not so much the decision to go into the dark. It's what's going to happen there. And what are the mechanics of it that are going to make it feel like a final failure that actually is a, a portal into a, a, a chance for redemption in act three. Um, so it's, it, it's not so much, um, a matter of your sensibility as, as your, your imagination and, um, and, and the, at some point it really is it becomes a, a it becomes almost a mechanical force the story becomes almost mechanical that a certain thing has to happen for a certain other thing has to happen etc me growing up in the midwest in the 70s and 80s we had our idea of hollywood which might have been what a lot of people had which was it's just this place where johnny carson 
basically runs. <laughs> and it's just this magical, incredible world. And then when I moved here and I started pumping gas in Beverly Hills of people like Lorraine Newman and the the writer. You were pumping gas in Beverly Hills? Yeah, it was awesome. Amazing. It was so great. Wow. Um uh, that's like that's act one of a movie right there like pumping gas and trust me hills. even then I knew that yeah and and I was like how do I write this because because it was because this guy hates cans well it was I wish it was that like that but I knew I didn't belong there <laughs> yeah I knew that the other guys who were pumping the gas they had families and this was about twice um uh, two times the uh, um, uh, minimum wage. Like, it was a good job. And and when I showed up, they're like, of course we're going to hire you. You're going to college, junior college, but you're going to college. You speak English. <laughs> you, you're dumb enough to say, I'll take any shift, and you'll actually show up to work. And so, but anyways, while it was going down, you're pumping the, it was all full-serve gas station. So everybody there worked in the industry. And one of the guys wrote for Family Ties. And I, I recognized his car when his two smoking hot daughters were driving it and came in for gas. One of the things when you pump gas full service is you learn the cars. Because if you say the right thing, you'll get a tip. Or if you do the right thing. But you only have like five minutes. That's tops. So anyhow, I dated one of the girls, which is also one of the goals in your five minutes is, can you get a phone number? And so all of a sudden I'm in Bel Air in the house across the street from uh, Quincy Jones's house. And I was like, this is Hollywood, like quote unquote Hollywood. And, and, and I asked the girl how I was, I was with terrible date, horrible date. These, these girls were so sheltered. But anyways, I said, is this what it's like? And she was like, a movie has recently come out called The Player. Hollywood is really about the player. Yeah. And every now and then I'll ask somebody like you who have actually seen the bowels and the machinery of making this sausage that Paul Schaefer calls the show. Um, and they almost all agree that it is a lot like The Player. Would you, would you agree that it's like The Player? In, in, that, sure. in, in that the writers are super important, yet the studio has their agenda, and even if you're an idealistic writer and you want these unknowns to be in your movie, it's still going to be Bruce Willis and, and Julia Roberts. I mean, short answer, of course, it's a business, you know, like one of the one of the key phrases is uh, they don't call it show friends. They call it show business. Um, and that said, I've been really lucky to work really consistently with a lot of people who I do call friends. And I think that at a certain at a certain level, especially if you can if you can work in if you can work on a on a going concern if you can work on a on a hit like the daily show where you're really you really are coming into work just to work just to create um there's no wheeling or dealing in that atmosphere and john was actually really john stewart was 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 really uh he should be commended for keeping that kind of vibe out of that building it honestly felt a lot like like the daily nexus our college newspaper where people are just coming in trying to make something that they're proud of um at, when you're doing that it doesn't feel at all like like a like a cynical movie. It feels it feels like exactly what it is, which is people coming together to create something um, in in the most um, 
in 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 just the most natural kind of way you know in the in in the same way that you know for thousands of years we've put together shows in front of the fire and put together ceremony you know like all of you're bringing all of that to bear on something and yeah you need to get paid for it because you're trying to make a living and and you you care about that and you're trying to take care of your career at the same time but if you, you there really are those sweet spots where you're just working and that's what that's what i'm here for uh, and there are people who there are people who are trying who are here for the power who are the, trying to set themselves up as some kind of power broker some kind of you know person who said who says yes or you know and it, it that's that's not what that's not what draws me and i you know as long as as long as it's expensive to create these things then those people will always be there and you know someone needs to have control of the budget but um it it really there are enough there are enough episodes of of just pure joyful creation for me that that's that's what the business is about for me there there's also an adage about hollywood that it's not what you know it's who you know and and i think that's why people kind of try to schmooze their way onto a, a big show so that they can meet the right guy or whatever but i think most people have a good radar for that and from what i've read about you you actually did get a, a help from a friend and and can you speak to that about yeah. about how how you can give advice to people on on how to kind of do that? Yeah, I think that whoever who, whoever came up with that was was a, a, a witty kind of person that it's not it's not what you know, it's who you know, because it's both. And I think that's probably every industry. It's both because here's the here's the truth. You need you need people who know you who can trust you, but also there isn't anybody in any position of responsibility in this business who's going to take too big of a chance on you just because you're their friend. And there it goes back to show business, not show friends, right? No one is going to put their own job, their own position, their own um, reputation within the business at too much risk by bringing in their friends. Now, I could also name right now probably 10 people who are absolutely infamous for doing that, uh, who, you know, bring in their their son, their friend, their girlfriend, whatever, you know, like uh, generally speaking, people are not going to behave that way. So, uh, yeah, I did. Um, I was friends with the head writer of The Daily Show when I got a job on The Daily Show. Um, and uh, it's probably safe to say I would not have gotten the job without it. But I'll also say this he wouldn't read anything I read for probably three years because he didn't want to mix business with friendship. And I respected that. I'm glad I didn't push him or anything. Um, so, um, so, so when I did finally write a submission for the show, uh, and it went into the stacks, you know, at the daily show, it, they go in, it, they go in blind. Uh, you know, there's, there's, there's no name attached to it. And, um, and I, and I was able to get the job that way. And, uh, you know, that's, so, you know, if what's the lesson there, I don't know. It's, I guess the lesson is that it's, it's, it's both what you know and who, you know, because you just can't, you can't ever expect anybody to, uh, to, to put themselves in jeopardy for you just because they know you. Well, and also don't, don't burn bridges if you can, because LA as big as it is, is also really small when it comes to Hollywood. Yeah, Hollywood. It yeah, and it feels that that's something that I heard for a long time, and that I'm I'm really starting to feel it. Like oh yeah, like this is the third time I've now come across this person. It really is that small of a town. Jason Ross, thank you so much. Thank you, Tony. What's the name of this book again? The Amazing Beef Squad: Never Say Die from Penguin. Thank you, Mr. Penguin. <laughs> 
Here in LA is produced by myself, Tony Pierce, and the man who plays the banjo with the horn player swag, Jordan Katz. Editing, mixing, and music supervision by Jordan Katz. Songs by Orgon and Jordan Katz. We put out new episodes every Monday and Thursday, and we have detailed, corresponding blog posts that go with each and every interview that can be found at hereinla.com. Thanks to Charlie and Dylan for the little white crosstops. Special thanks to Cindy for creating the logo. Jen Adams for inspiring me to do this in Kim and Oz's backyard. Jordan for joining forces with me and really making this happen. And shout out to everyone who said nice things about our previous episodes. Go to hereinla.com to find easy ways to get to Jason's book, The Amazing Beef Squad, Never Say Die, or ask for it by name at your local bookstore. Kudos on your 90th birthday, Joe T. Kovac. <laughs>